Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good lad. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. You're very welcome along to Second Captains at the Irish Times on the Monday after one of the sweetest Irish sporting successes of recent times. It was only one game, sure, but it's rare enough that we've had a match wrapped up against a very good team so far before the end. Just when you fear there might be a bit of an anticlimax, Ireland's forwards completely emasculate Wales march them almost over the line Paddy Jackson finishes the job takes a cheap shot Mike Phillips gets involved he gets sent off much of the amusement of everybody around the place and it's all yeah. it's just perfect it was it was very funny to see Mike Phillips totally lose it and then get then get yellow carded I mean it would I mean we're nitpicking now but if it had been Brian O'Driscoll running over that try <laughs> that would have been actually the place might have fallen down the, the entire stadium might have collapsed out of a mixture of really quite spiteful laughter, which is what I was doing at, at that moment in time. When, I, when we saw the cheap shot going in on Paddy Jackson, the try, as you say, the, the most emasculating thing that can happen really in rugby. Yeah. Well, I suppose in the scrum or the mall is the same kind of thing, but we basically just Is it even more emasculating to have members of boy bands call you out over Twitter? It's not, can you tell? It's not, it's not you wanna, have you heard about yeah. this guy? No. Niall from uh, One Direction uh, tweeted... Um, just, Mike Phillips. Uh, just after the uh, after that after the Paddy Jackson try, and when uh, Phillips had been sent off, saying something along the lines of "What an idiot Mike Phillips is!" comes across as so rude and arrogant, and uh, <laughs> which, you know it's fine. That's his that's his opinion. He didn't include Mike Phillips's you know Twitter name in it, but so it didn't come up. And Mike Phillips probably got to hear about it. He did well, hear about it, it is a tweet from a One Direction member, so it got retweeted like you know seventy nine thousand times, yeah. and uh, Mike Phillips retweeted him and said. Uh, you can come to training next week and you can bring the rest of the Beatles, right? Yeah. To Nile <laughs> from One Direction. What Which, was Mike Phillips kind of said about them with a pool cue? He looks like he'd be pretty handy with yeah. a piece of equipment like that. Well, obviously that kind of, that got quite a, lot, quite a lot of traction as well. Probably a lot of, upset quite a lot of teenage girls. Yeah. A lot of teenage Welsh girls being put in a very invidious position all of a sudden, having to choose between Mike Phillips and a member of One Direction. But of course, who comes riding to the rescue? But well, Rob, well. Rob Kearney to defuse the whole situation by saying... I thought he would have just posted that vine of uh, Sam Allardyce laughing at Chico Flores. <laughs> no. no, no, Rob Kearney is he's a peace-loving hombre. And uh, he tweeted the two of them just to say, uh, don't worry, Niall, I've got your back. 
with, you know, perhaps an emoji of some description as well. Uh, to which Mike Phillips then immediately said, ha ha, you know, what happened to us? And then and posted a, a photograph of himself and Rob Kearney in happier times. Whatever about Rob Kearney, the Lions tour. We have a new national hero. Oh, what a couple of weeks it's been for Brand O'Mahony. Uh, because Peter O'Mahony, I mean, there's literally no way that anyone in Ireland could love Peter O'Mahony more at the moment. And I mean, you know, some would say that his entourage, maybe it's his social media manager, his public relations manager, has gotten in his ear and said, Peter, you know what? You know what to really endear you to the to Joe Schlob out there <laughs> is if you sag the Irish national anthem hilariously loudly as the camera was padding by. And it's got to the stage where you can hear Peter O'Mahony before you can see him. And, you know, the sort of the anthem sort of roll through. Uh, so he's roaring uh, Aaron Devine out at and ridiculous and a ridiculous, the right. lesser herald at Ireland's call he doesn't discriminate between anthems no, he just goes hell for leather on he's both. happy to sing both of them at full at <laughs> full volume that, you know I mean the, obviously the, that, that's his entourage you know Timo Manny getting in his ear saying you know the, people are going to love that they're the lesser you know the, the, the lesser heralded uh, parts of you know sort of building that brand yeah. like say being unbelievably good at rugby uh, and putting in just an outrageously good performance. I mean, it's all. I suppose it all contributes. He's got that GA player quality of celebrating things that aren't pretty minor scores. Events in the yeah. He'll, he he he. He's he, like rugby's John Milan. Yeah, he uh, managed to force a turnover at one point early on, as he tends to do, and he fist is clenched, John yeah. Milan style, and he's dead right too. He's yeah. he it's, plays on that. I, I, I love him. I yeah, love the man. It's quite it's quite interesting though because he's doing a part of the game which basically means what we need you to do here, Peter, is. Stick your head on the ground, uh, leave your entire torso exposed, and allow that to be whacked at high speed by extremely large gentlemen, and try and hold on to the ball. So, I mean, it's it's not a particularly glamorous part of the game, shall we say? Hence the anthems. That's yep. this is where the entourage come in. Yep. Good advice. Whoever's advising Peter Manny, it's Manny. really it really strong advice. Terrible game though. No, it? it was really sweet. What? Well, sweet. Hold on, it was awful. The so. contrary view. Go on. It really was. I mean, Wales were awful. Yeah. They were like an animal with colic, you know, sort of groaning. Oh, you know, ba- a, a cow that had colic battling, batting its head against the gate, you know, trying to escape <laughs> and go down to the, to the well. I mean, I, I just, uh, I don't know, I, I felt that whole Warren Ball thing, mm. you really have to win, don't you, to justify your existence? Because it's not, it's not very pretty to watch. No, it's really, really ugly, really terrible. Um, and in my opinion, I saw Hugh Cahill, for instance, um, a former colleague of ours, and now an RT man, mm. uh, hailing it as a measured performance. I've never seen such a measured performance. And I think when you hear a word like measured about any performance, you know that it was a terrible game. <laughs> I mean, the side that won 26 3 or whatever. Yeah. So measured. And you're thinking, yeah, that wasn't a classic. The oh, I don't know. Biggest single reason for our victory, though, guys, was the silence of Ken Burley. A lot of you asked to hear Ken Early's arrogant rugby alter ego on Welsh radio this week. He's appeared many times over the last number of years. But if you haven't noticed, our record against Wales hasn't been amazing in that time, certainly in some of the bigger games. And what happened was we were thinking of getting him involved, but we got wind that Wales were using his words as motivation. Mike Phillips mm. would download and listen on the way to the Millennium Stadium. All the motivation needed, he needed. Wherever it was. So we decided to stop it. Ken Birdie's silence has won us this Six Nations victory. Yeah. The Winter Olympics are up and running over the weekend. Very briefly, Murphy, have you seen much of them? Uh, well, I saw a bit on Saturday morning. So there was some oh, snow slope 
Oh God knows what the hell it was called. And then I saw some women's ice hockey. And then there was a lot of actual sport that, you know, people are actually really interested in on over the the course of the weekend. So I didn't really see a whole lot. But I was kind of thinking about this uh, in the run up to the Winter Olympics. And uh, obviously a lot of talk about, um, you know, the the corruption involved in uh, the, the huge overspend on the Winter Olympics and the the homophobia issue, the mm-hmm. gay rights issue in, in Russia. And I was kind of thinking, if this was a real Olympics, now would be around the time that we get sidetracked by the actual sport that we're really interested in. But when it's the Winter Olympics, that's actually the main show for us. The main for, show us for us it is. We're, now, you're coming at this from a very oh, Irish point from, of view. I'm sure Irish. if you're in Austria, you're pretty happy with all the of course. medals. Obviously, but I mean, that's exactly where, where I'm coming from, that... Uh, that's still what we're interested in. I mean, what's really going to uh, move the needle over here is any further developments in relation to that is true, uh, yeah. gay rights in in Russia and you know the the, the overspend and what we're lo- what what we're actually seeing uh, from that side of things much more than the sport. Because we, we, I mean, really, what what are we going to be watching in the Winter Olympics that is isn't anything more than sort of a a nice little distraction. You know, mm. I mean, it's it's not really... So you're not fully buying into the Olympic idea, because we do want to talk about the pressure on the athletes to perform at the Games. This is something that is a similar theme, both in the summer and winter Olympics. You have to make the last... You talk about justifying your existence earlier with regards to Warren Ball, the athletes involved there have to make the last four years count. It's a pressure familiar to one of our guests today, Colin Jackson, the two-time world champion hurdler who held the world record for 13 years but never managed to win that Olympic gold. He's in Dublin today and he's going to be calling into studio. First up, it is the rugby. Liam Toland is on the line and will be chatting to us in a little while. In studio, Malcolm O'Kelly and Jerry Thorny, Irish Times rugby correspondent. Lads, thanks very much for calling in. Well, thanks very yes. much. I think, first of all, maybe we should mention that we do have a swear jar outside for anyone who mentions the word Grand Slam or Triple Crown. Because personally, Jerry, I think let's... And it's not even just a case of looking one game ahead, but I do worry that we create this false tournament in our own mind and because of that, we never win the championship. We could mm. settle for worst comes to the worst. You lose to England by a point. Still in a pretty good position to have a go at the championship. Couldn't agree with you more. I think winning a title would be something that is very rare for Irish rugby. Is it, I think this would only be the second in 29 years. There's only been one since 85. I, I, my great regret from Mal and all his golden generation, I don't mind calling them that, is you know when you've got a generation, when you've had Paul O'Connell, Brian O'Driscoll, Ron O'Gara, all the other players we had to have only had one title. It's actually a poor, bit of a poor return. Yeah. It's a bit annoying when you see the Welsh hoovering up so many titles in the same period. <clears throat> so, I, yeah, I think a title would be great. And I think in, in that context, the way the team kept going on Saturday and really put their puts down on the throats of the Welsh with that mauling try. I thought that was a really good end game to press home their advantage, get another seven points. Meantime, where France were leaking a late seven. And recalling how that Vermalen try in 07, I think it was, Mal, wasn't it? Cost Ireland the uh, title and points difference. Mm. Yeah, I think it would be a good return to come back with the title. It does seem to be uh, an Irish mindset. Now, maybe after winning a couple of triple crowns, we did start to have our sights set a little bit higher than that. But And I shouldn't be defeatist about the England game. Of course, that's a winnable match, Malcolm. But I'm just wondering if, it come, if the worst comes to us, we do lose that game. It'd be nice to think that we're still in it. We've, we've won our two home games and then you go into the last two matches with a chance at the title. Yeah, that's, that's very true. Of course, of course it is. And we, I think we have to realise that, you know, you lose a match um, and suddenly everything can change so easy. So we have to be very conservative in, in the way we the way we think and, and, and the way certainly the Irish team are going to approach every match is going to be like that. One loss changes everything. 
So they've put themselves in an incredible position. And, and I think for the Irish team, as it's developed, and, and, and as Jerry was saying, you know, it was disappointing to see that we didn't win as many ga- as many competitions as, as perhaps we, we could have. Like, the, the Irish team, where, where did we actually come from? You know, we'd really come from a, a low confidence level. And we reached this, we attained, uh, we, we attained a certain, uh, to, got to a certain level. But now I see this, this, this Irish team at the moment has got incredible depth, you know, I think which is really important. They're young guys, but they've got uh, massive confidence from winning week in, week out at provincial level, you know. So I think this team is, you know, um, it's, got massive, uh, it's got a massive opportunity here. It's found itself in a great position, but it has to, you know, think it, take everything at a, a game at a time, take it nice and slowly and... You know, I think there's good opportunity there. It's a very well-coached team. We know that at this stage, Jerry. It seems as though when you're watching Joe Schmidt's teams, be it Leinster and now Ireland, they do the things that... The coach tells them to do. That the coach tells them to do. And also that the other team doesn't want them to do. I know that sounds simplistic, but they find... Maybe it's New Zealand will be very good at this. They find a weakness in the opposing team and they don't tire of going after that weakness. It can be a little bit repetitive, maybe, but it's it's, it's generally the right thing to do. Yep. Um... I think that the tactics and so I don't know if I've ever seen a Joe Schmidt team play like that. Maybe one of his school sides did back in the day when they were up against a bigger side, bigger back line. But they kind of um they uh they attacked the Welsh line out, they knew that was a source of weakness, so they were quite happy to put the ball out over the touchline, which you might normally do you might necessarily do against England so much. Um they played a very much a kicking game, um, despite the weather not really hitting into the second half because they took the break they reduced the impact of the breakdown on the game. And of course their their breakdown work was sensational. I just like recalling Gordon Darcy and the way he stood up opponents and sought out soft shoulders and it might only have been an, a yard of time but it was in a game of inches of trench warfare it was invaluable aside from his perfect tackling I think he was the joint highest tackle count on the team as well and they just they looked like a team that just believed in their coach they did exactly what he told them to do and they stuck with it for 80 minutes and in terms of its focus and its intensity and its pragmatism it was almost flawless in that sense. It's funny, it's different from, as you were saying, what we would expect the Joe Schmidt team to play like, other than they're always going to play smart. A team coached by Joe Schmidt is going to play the, the cleverest way. And it seems like at the moment, maybe for this Irish team, the cleverest way is what we saw on Saturday. Or was that just specific to oh, the I think opponents? that was specifically. I don't know really, if those yeah. tactics would work so much against England. I would have thought against England, when you come up against a big juggernaut pack, you don't want to have that many lineouts. You don't want to give them that much set piece of platform. And you would actually want to play a bit more of a ball in hand, high tempo game and move them around a bit. I would have thought. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think that um, uh, Ireland showed that... Um, even if you're up against a hugely physical team, that the the ability of playing smart and finding soft shoulders is still there. Like, you know, like Darce and Drico, they're giving away 15 kg yeah. against these guys. Yet every time they took the ball up, and Darce had been taking the ball up on the line, flat receiving the ball, no momentum, mm-hmm. and still manages to mm-hmm. eke out like those uh, yeah, one yard. And given it given, looks small, but it's mm, huge, isn't it? But the way that? the Irish dealt then yeah. with with the Welsh runners around the corner, there was like Lydia and these guys were getting absolutely hammered. They were too deep. They were uh, stopped. They, they they took the ball maybe five yards behind the gain line. O'Connell, Amani um, uh, just coming in 
and just smashing them, you know. And that hunger, I think, that Ireland showed, you know, is something that was maybe lacking last year in the, under the, in the kidney era, you know. And that, again, that was down to the coach and the, and the preparation. You know, it was almost taking a leaf out of the Welsh manual as against Ireland, the yeah. Wellington World Cup quarterfinal. Chop him low and get Peter Armani mm-hmm. in over yeah. the ball. And um, again, for all this to have been achieved in two training sessions in a six-day turnaround, Again, just shows you what belief they have in this coach, and they're going to do what they're told. I think they have a really good structure and framework, and yeah. they're very confident going out. And I think a team that really knows what it, what it needs to do to win, you know, can really achieve something special. You know, like you just you've got a strong framework, strong structure. You know what you want to get out of the game. Uh, and you know that if you do it, it'll work. And there's that confidence that builds within the side. Well, you've made some really good points, like in terms of we are allowed to mention the Triple Crown because it's on the line in Twickenham. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I think you're, the other words we probably we shouldn't mention just yet. And it is only two home wins. I take your point. And Ireland do, do get very giddy with excitement once we get a sniff of success in any sport because we probably we don't get that much of it. It's not like the, you're right, man. It's not like the Welsh DNA. They grew up with all these heroes from the 70s they read about, but it's part of their DNA. Mm. They expect to win. So yeah, they get a bit. New force. Yes. Yeah. When they, so when they get a bit of momentum, they really run with it and they're very confident and cocky with it, and it almost suits them. I would have thought something, sorry to cut across, Jerry, that uh, strikes me though when you talk about the way we prepared for the uh, Wales game, we have a bit more time now before the England game, yeah. but it must be difficult if we are going to look at the England match to implement a whole new game plan. Already, if a coach wants a team to buy into what he's doing, he has to convince them of all, show them exactly what he needs to be done. If you're then changing that almost entirely for another game, is that going to be hard to get our heads around? Well, I, look, I don't think they're going to change. It's not going to be like a huge, massive change for the guys. Like the key elements are probably still going to be there. Look, their discipline, uh, their their need to be uh, aggressive at, at the gain line, um, turning ball over, f- making them fight for everything, our ability to get up off the ground and work incredibly hard for each other. Uh, our, you know, our, our, our set piece work, our mauling, like that's not going to change. You know, uh, what's going to change is maybe the, you know they'll they'll slightly change a certain amount of deception. They might you know attack a certain area. You know, like I would have thought. Like, I think our first attack against Wales was a little uh, um, a little chip kick across onto George North. You know, where, mm. where George North was found wanting against the Italians mm. under a high ball. Mm. So, you know, he will he will find little areas where, you know, he thinks there's uh, an opportunity to get uh, a soft shoulder or, um, to, well, like, in essence, the work will still have to be done. The graft will still have to be done. That won't change. And it's not unlike what they did against New Zealand. I mean, they could take that as yeah. they just re- resort, resort to that where they kept the ball in hand and you showed you, even against the best team in the world, that if, if the carrying is correct and the first one or two players in are clearing out quick ball and Murray's there, which is, you know, Murray's playing superb rugby, playing the best rugby of his life, and Ireland play at that kind of tempo, they can struggle with, any team in the world will struggle to live with them. The discipline was pretty important as well. And mm. this is defensively and in every way, the fact that we only gave away two kickable penalties over the course mm. of 80 minutes was right. pretty impressive. Astonishing. Is one that, line break is first against first Wales. Kick, first kick, 55 minutes. Yeah. On one yeah. line break. Is that encouraging? Because is that the kind of thing that should withstand the extra pressure that's going to come on in the next few days? If you have that, if you know how to do that, then when the next pressure comes on, hopefully... Attacks win matches and defence yeah. win, defense wins tournaments. And you saw that in 9 You know, the defence was outstanding in 9 yeah. as well. It's a, it's a great bedrock for any team. Yeah, and you can bet that, like, um, that uh, the energy that they're bringing, you know, that will continue, you know. Uh, mm. It is t- it's tough when you go away. Like, when you're at home, that energy is easily found... 
Um, and I think that is going to be, uh, you know, that's going to be a considerable factor. Like the fact now that they're going let's go to Twickenham. Mm. Uh, like Twickenham is a tough place to go. There's no doubt about it. And if suddenly things aren't going your own way, then it can be a, a really tough day. Do you need to take a different approach? Do you have to be a bit more cold and calculated when you're going away to Twickenham? Well, I think I think they need to, uh, you know, obviously reduce their errors. You know, well, the, obviously the Welsh the Welsh game there was practically no errors, but they need to maintain an, an error-free game. You know, if suddenly there's guys making errors, dropping balls, like we saw the Welsh side. You know, the guys that you rely on, like Hibbert and these guys going around the corner, Falatau going around the corner. They're knocking balls on. If Ireland were suddenly to do that, they could look very average. Mm. Uh, Engli- England are an incredibly strong side. They've uh, very few weaknesses up front. Uh, the back line now is looking a little bit more, mm-hmm. a little bit more dangerous. They're real aggressive, uh, you know, wingers. They've got um, real hard working uh, back row, you know. So there, there are a lot of challenges there for for the Irish team. But the key will be no uh, mistake-free rugby uh, to start with. Get themselves into the game. You know, keep themselves in the game for as long as possible, um, and then look to strike when they get an opportunity. The typical Joe Schmidt, you know. Yeah. Take your opportunities and strike. They're going to be can. tested in different ways than they were by the Welsh. We flagged this before the game that maybe Gethin Jenkins and Adam Jones are on the way down from the mountaintop. The English scrum is of a, a different beast altogether, and we saw on Twickenham the last time Ireland were there that if the English get a sniff at scrum time. They draw so much energy from that. They get the swing low, sweet chariot echoing around the ground. It could become a very trying day at the office. So the, the scrum has to be, has not give an inch really and be very strong. And I also think that you've got to remember, you, you're talking about, yeah, it's a two-week break, but that, I think that's perfect. I, in so much as the fixture list or the itinerary could have been planned for Ireland, given allowing for trips to London and Paris, and I don't think Ireland have won in both cities in the same year since 1972. If you're going to plan it this way, well then, yeah, start off with two home wins have a two-week break build into England and then another two-week break for Italy at home and finish off in Paris. It's possibly the way you won't yeah. most want to plan it. Well, Liam Tolan joins us now. Liam, just to go back to a point that Jerry was making there about what Wales actually offered. On the face of it, you beat the reigning champions at home by such a margin. It is hugely impressive, but Wales being Wales, they seem to... We often talk about France, France's inconsistency and not knowing which of their teams is going to turn up. It can sometimes be that way with Wales. How much do we have to um, put our victory down to how poor and unprepared they seem to be. Well, <clears throat> sorry, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't suggest that they were poor or unprepared. They certainly came with a game plan that was very discernible in the opening um, five, ten minutes, and they came to try and get the ball to the game line very, very quickly in a brutal physical contest. And they, I assume, expected Ireland to be unable to cope with that, and then on multi-phase, maybe the fifth or sixth phase, that they'd have the North and Cuthbert running in tries. And that seemed to be... Um, uh, their, their game plan. Now, having listened to the lads, it's interesting to, to the question you asked about how would Ireland change their game for the English uh, encounter. And there were there were slight different changes in what Ireland did between Scotland and Wales. The the exit strategy, for example, against Scotland was very much linked to Gary owning the ball and trying to reclaim it. Whereas against Wales, it was kicking it down, as Mal was saying, down to Lee Halfpenny and um, and isolating them down in, in deep, which then led to another knock-on effect. Any penalties that were conceded were done so in the Welsh half. So all of these are tactical decisions that Joe Smith and his management team would have made in advance. And it was a very, very impressive from a mental point of view and a tactical point of view. Those slight subtle changes can happen again for the English game. And what's of crucial importance is clearly the players love what's happening and they'll buy into any of those subtle changes and do so with 100% commitment. So you are getting excited then? You're not, going, you're not buying my line that maybe Wales were, if not ill-prepared, then they didn't seem to be prepared for what Ireland brought to them? 
Well, Wales were very prepared. If you just watch the opening five, ten minutes, you can see exactly what they were doing. They knew exactly what they were doing, except Ireland happened to be better prepared and able to neutralise a lot mm. of what they did. I know um, Jerry was talking there about Gordon Darcy. He just took that one isolated aspect, not just him, because he's been doing that all his career, but all the other Irish players and the less known ball carriers were not going into contact and going to deck as they had been doing two or three seasons ago. They're going in and making it very difficult to constantly yards after the tackle. They were really working hard to avoid the Welsh back row sealing that ball. That's something that isn't a coincidence. They worked very, very hard at that. So that's something Ireland did very, very well and the kicking game wasn't as accurate as it should have been at times, but it got the ball out of their own half, which is very, very important. And what Wales failed to do is they failed to readjust to what was happening. Yeah. And we have experienced that too, and Matt has experienced that too, where you play going into a game as a slight favourite, as we did in the World Cup, and Wales came with their game plan and just dominated, and we failed to, to adjust. I think a little bit that's what Wales were caught out with. They looked a little bit, little bit shell-shocked. Their line-offs creaked at critical times. Um, I thought Hibbert's release of the ball was very slow, so it allowed the Irish... Um, the Irish defensive line out. I wonder what Mal would think of this. But the Irish defensive line really to get into the air and contest those balls. Which so we got huge advantage on our own line out, our own line out more. But we put massive pressure on their set piece as well. What about that, Mal? Um, yeah, like obviously the Irish line out was was incredible. You know, and I've experienced days like that where you just you know you're able to read what's happening. Um, you've just got the better of them. Um, I think it helps when you've got obviously Paul O'Connell as athletic as he is, and then you've got Devon Turner six foot ten. Uh, playing against a guy who's six foot four, and then you got uh, Piero Manny. Like they've got the ability there. Three really good, and actually Jamie Heaslip was up in the air as well. Key there is every line that the Wales had. Uh, you had Irish guys up in the air. You know they weren't always they weren't always get, winning it, but they were always in the air competing. Uh, one of the key things for 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 any line out was just getting guys up in the air. And they did that, and they, and they won a lot of ball and upset them a lot of times where Ireland's just seemed to win their ball with ease. Uh, like, you know, you're throwing the ball to Devon Tone, Rory can really let it go, knowing that uh, the big man is just going to go, go get... Like, he'd have, he'd have a, a foot, foot and a half on who he's up against. He's an know? interesting uh, case in point, Devon Toner, because he's always had that, but I think people have been waiting for him to really arrive. He's been worked on quite a lot by coaches, uh, and he seems to be... I don't know, maybe this is unfair on him, it just strikes me that maybe it's only occurred to him in, the, in recent years how good he can be and how he actually should be a part of these big Irish days. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He's a a really lovely character. Uh, you know, he's he's not like your 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 stereotypical kind of uh, in your in your face kind of like like some of the big guys. You know, need to just be kind of uh, pushed along. You know, and told that yeah, you're you you are good enough. And and for a big guy like that, he needed a lot of work to get him to the to the to the strength to be like like you've no idea how long this guy these his arms are and you've got to develop him and build him up and core wise and all that but he's at a stage now where he is he's got a lot to contribute um he's he's got a huge offering um he's very he's got he's got the tank now i think which he didn't have you know he's really got the tank to like to to say at 55 minutes okay we can let paul we can rest Paul. Obviously, he's come from where he's come from, uh, sickness-wise. Uh, we can let Dev take over, mm. uh, and it was seamless. You know, like that's that's a huge statement by uh, 
by um, by Joe and and like for a guy like that, I think it's really important that he's given that kind of you know authority, you know. And certainly for me, it was similarly so when I was playing. You know, to be given the authority, you, you can't, like, you won't just go out and just one of these people who just take it. You need to be kind of told, look, you are, you are good enough for this. Uh, here you go, and you just and you you stand up to it, you know. Yeah, his reaction was interesting. As I'm talking about the uh, Paul O'Connell pulling out in the day of the Scotland game, and John Plumtree came down and told him this and said, "You're going to be leading the lineouts." And he thought he was taking the mick out of him. He assumed that O'Connell, because everyone thought O'Connell was fine the night before, but then he thought, "Well, that's fine. I, I do want that responsibility." So it's encouraging that he's yeah. willing to take that on. Yeah, that's 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 fantastic to hear that, you know. And and I think. Uh, uh, he's done it with Leinster for over the years, you know, and he's he's trained and learned uh, with Leinster, and uh, um, that stood to him. Uh, and I think the lineup setups are quite similar, and they would have worked. Uh, uh, they would have worked with each. Uh, they would have. They would have been in tandem with Joe and all that. So you know, it wouldn't have been an issue for him to to come in and step in like that. You know, yeah, that's fantastic. It's yeah. interesting that you can in professional rugby construct a player in this way uh, maybe that's a little bit unfair but a guy with the natural attributes that he has if you work on all the other physical and psychological elements there you get an international class player that you have now yeah and maybe that's another virtue or strength of the system of Irish rugby that the system affords that possibility there isn't a foreign influx of players there's the, uh, the, the there's the, the rabo stroke Heineken then test rugby you can play. There's very good coaching, strength and conditioning. You could in fall each by the, the wayside maybe if there were more foreign players. Oh, too many foreign. Do you players really think he'd come through the French system? Not a chance yeah, in hell. Chance. He'd be gone. He'd be gone, wouldn't he? Absolutely yeah, gone. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like we don't. We haven't rushed. We haven't rushed mm. rushed him at all. Like no. so, we were lucky. Like we <clears> likes of uh, like uh, like I was there. You know, Leo uh, and um, and then Heinze and the, we had lots of guys there that 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 allowed him. Maybe you know, obviously he would like to have been. Where, where he is now, two years previous, you know, but maybe he wasn't physically ready. God knows now, who he from Brad. Brad Thorne yeah, as oh, well. sorry, Brad yeah. Thorne as well. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So, like, to have these kind of players uh, there, you know, it was just uh, immense for him. And, um, I'm sure know, those but, kind of guys never needed too much pushing along, the likes of Leo Cullen. Oh, that's it, exactly. Well, Leo's, yeah, well, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. Leo's always been a captain. He's a different character, you know. Yeah. He's a different character to, to Devon, you know. Devon has, has not, never been a captain, as far as I'm aware. So Leo's always been a captain. So he's a different character, you know. It's funny, we uh, heard Peter Manny after the game talking about the driving mall and how they used that and how everybody had their laptops out in the week coming up to the game, just working on the technical aspects of that. It's maybe something we don't think about that much when you see something like that happening, but it's a very technical thing that if, if Ireland can get right, it seems like something that John Plumtree is working on mm. as well. Mm. There are specific things that he's doing to our pack, which seems to be improving. Yeah, yeah. Like, like I say, the mall is, the mall is just un exquisite like and for you know someone like myself who's 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 been in teams where we've had poor malls and good malls it, it comes down to practice it comes down to what emphasis you put on the mall and by all accounts the guys just do every line out has got the mall set up and there's so many different things that can uh contribute to um like a, a mall scenario and how you deal with those scenarios uh, be it the the the, the the catcher gets pulled down or mm. the defence attack in a different way or even different up and down the line out in a different way will affect you know your personnel who gets there and there's so many different uh, attributes to it that you know everybody has to know all these roles Bowing to your vastly greater knowledge on this subject a key for me it seems like is when the, say the ball goes to Toner in the middle 
is the way when it, when the ball comes down, they immediately switch the point of the mm. ball to either the front or yeah. the back, and the and the defence never knows. Which, yeah. the, the Chris Henry try was virtually a five man maul to the front. Yeah, That's, yeah. they transfer yeah. the weight very quickly yeah. on the ball. Like very it's quickly. very important that at that point, like even from you make the decision where Devon comes forward and the guys that step out, like uh, Jamie stepped mm. out, yes. and yeah. and so you get your strongest guys lifting. Mm. So you've got your, your strongest guys lifting, your biggest guy catching, down to uh, your most explosive guys yes. coming in. Yeah. You know, it's all this kind of arrangement <laughs> that you create. Uh, but still, you know, you have to win the ball. You mm. know, you can't you can't lose sight of the of the basics. So, uh, and the, like the, even the fa- like, would you, like normally the first guy would go on the ball. Mm-hmm. So Jamie would go on the ball. But what actually fact is Jamie protected uh, the, the front area. There where, where Mike Ross would have been lifted and traditionally would have been smashed. So that whole area would be unstable. But Jamie stabilises that area. Uh, Chris Henry comes in mm-hmm. uh, almost at the exact same time so you don't get done for truck and trailer. Mm-hmm. Another, and, and then Keen Healy wraps around mm-hmm. and suddenly you've got this... And one, Best comes this, in. You just yeah. can't. Yeah. You can't budget. <laughs> they couldn't go near it. And I just the momentum uh, of it was just incredible. It was perfectly executed, was, wasn't it? Absolutely yeah. perfectly executed. Yeah. Liam, you've heard the guys talking about what we can uh, or will and won't be able to do against England. What do you think? What sort of changes do you think will be made? For example, will the rolling mall work to the same effect against the England? I'd love to see us marching England back 50 metres at Twickenham well, the funny thing about the rolling ball it's not, it's not necessarily built on, on weight differential because England will have a far heavier team than we will it's, it's, that's what Mal is talking about it's body height it's an attitude it's getting the right people in the right position and of crucial importance it's reacting to what the opposition are trying to do to disrupt you and we often see the French when they have, they're just so physically brilliant they love the line up mall they have oftentimes got terrible body positions, but they have such a confidence in what they're doing they can get they can right the wrongs in the middle of it. We don't have that luxury and what was very impressive about that particular try was as the lads described it, it was planned and it went to a T and the speed of which they did it caught Wales out. And once you get it moving it's very difficult to stop. I think England will obviously prepare for that. But I the the, the real the real thing about England is Owen Farrell at 10. He plays a certain style of rugby which will force the Irish management once again to rethink tactically. How do you, how do you disrupt this guy? How do you limit his ability to, to get the big guys? Like uh, 12 trees is, is a decent ball carrier, but Burrell, who's, what is he, two or three caps for England, is a monster. He's a first centre playing a second centre. So they have very obvious strengths that can be converted into weaknesses, just like uh, Ireland managed with Wales. So it's another fascinating encounter. I suppose what makes the Six Nations so wonderful is that every single game is completely different from the previous one, which is slightly different from the Rabo. You get most teams begin to you can see a pattern of how teams play, but with the Six Nations, it's drastically different. England have enough strengths that can be converted into weaknesses, which is the exciting bit. Can we do that, Jerry? Do you think we've enough? We'll talk more about this next week and later on this week, I'm sure. But just for now. Um, <clears throat> I would safely say the book is going to make England four, five, six point favourites, which is fair enough. Um, I think on paper it is probably Ireland's most difficult match of the five. Unless France are still going for a slam in the last weekend and I'd be surprised if Wales don't beat them. I mean, all four Irish sides have won in the, in the Heineken Cup in France. I would just give Ireland a slightly better chance there at the, as things stand. So therefore, it's Ireland's most difficult match. England are going to be desperate to win because they've already had a defeat and can't afford another one. So it all depends on I but it all depends on the momentum of the game, factors like the scrum. But yes, a lot of the things we've discussed that Ireland did really, really well against Wales 
probably won't work against England, will they, Mal? Realistically, you know what I mean? We're not going to get that same. Mm. We're not going to get that same in, infiltration to the English yeah. line out. Yeah, we're nice. not going to get the same probably yardage and fourteen point haul from the mall. You know, the scrum is going to be tested in a bit much different way. Yeah, yeah. No, you're 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 dead right. Like if in the Wales match, I think we reacted to our to our position in the match. I think the fact that we were so far ahead and we were we were comfortable and we were we were winning certainly with the, with the competitive kicking, we were getting advantage there. There's no guarantee if you start uh, Rob Carney starts banging up balls and you start getting no return out of it, then they have to be able to put a plan B together and. Uh, uh, we certainly won't get the kind of return from um, uh, the English lineout, um, and I think it would be risky uh, to assume that um, uh, that they won't they won't do what we did against Wales to us. You know, so like we have to realise the threat that England are physically uh, and at scrum time. As and if well. you were to pick a crib in the Irish performance today, you'd have to say their spot moves or the strike moves offset plays haven't really worked. It's why O'Driscoll got smashed again at the weekend. But, there hasn't been an awful lot of creative back play and the English line speed is very aggressive, every bit as much as Wales is. It's very physical and so they, they're probably going to have to make improvements in other areas that we haven't seen yet. Mal, just on the psychological aspect, uh, I know Joe Schmidt was talking afterwards about trying to make sure the players deal with their anxiety. I, I guess there's no way of players not being anxious when they're coming into big games like this mm. but just to keep it yeah, in like and use it the right like, way. It's such a hard thing to con- contend with. Like... Um, like you've got two weeks it'll seem like two months almost you know mm. like all you want to do is just get out there you know like the, the and anxiety can play a huge factor in terms of how you uh, your first your first play in the game mm. you know like say for say someone in, in, in the second row's case he's got to catch the first kickoff you know uh, you know what's what's to stop him just getting a rush of blood to the head you know and it banging off his chest instead of catching it you know so these are the small little things um, and I suppose this, you know, what the coach has to do then is just, you know, really just look to uh, keep the players uh, focused on, you know, what what they're trying to achieve, um, working working hard on the the elements that will give them the advantage against England, and that's what Josh Schmidt is brilliant at. Like yeah, he will he, find the weaknesses in. He was English. talking about that within an hour of the full time whistle to <laughs> yeah. us in the Daily Huddle. What's the big thing? Managing expectations because they're going to leave the bubble that they've been in for the last two weeks and go out again amongst their family and their friends and the public yeah. and suddenly get a, a, a sense of That's this it. expectation. You'll have every mother saying, yeah. every yeah. mother will be saying, <laughs> like, you, oh, I can't wait, we're, we're going to get tickets for England. Clamour for tickets. Man, the clamour for tickets. Oh, the expats. No and, oh, it's going to be mental. But, like, it's all his fault anyway. He's the one who created this expectation. Exactly. <laughs> we leave it there. Jerry, brilliant stuff. Liam Tolan, thank you on the line as well. And Malcolm O'Kelly. Jerry, the uh, swear jar is just outside there. So it's 20 cent for one triple crown mention. Thanks very much. Are you paying too much for your current account? Maybe it's time for a change. At KBC, everyone can bank for just two euros a month. That's the price of a coffee. Just use your KBC debit card for purchases or cash back for free and avoid those annoying ATM charges. Oh, and did we mention you also get free internet and mobile banking? And before you ask, yes, your bank could be charging you for all these. Other fees and charges apply. Visit changeyourbank.ie, call 1-800-5152-53 or pop in for a coffee at any KBC hub in Dublin, Cork, Limerick and Galway. KBC, the bank of you. Two euros a month is based on a quarterly fee of six euros. Terms and conditions apply. KBC Bank Ireland PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. I absolutely love the technical detail that Malcolm gave us there on the... Line out, and not so much the line out, but the rolling mall, just incredible. Mm. Yeah, he, he used the word exquisite. Yeah, you know, I mean, I would have thought the rolling mall can be many things, you know, brutally effective, um, emasculating, as you said earlier. But I mean, 
you know, the... I don't know what you'd call it, the Greek ideal of beauty. You know, it's, it's not kind of what you think about when you think of the rolling mall. Well, you know, <laughs> it is, you know, it is basically, you know, a large group of men with the ball nowhere in sight, trudging extremely slowly towards <laughs> the opposition. It is amazing what you could become interested in, though, when there's a bit of success on the line. Yeah. What, are, what exactly is this thing that's getting us all these tries? Yeah, I mean, if the rolling mall was ineffective, we'd be like, God, if I have to look at one more bloody rolling mall. It's amazing what you consider beautiful when you're involved in it yourself. This is a second row, international. It is a second true. row. His, his idea of beauty is... Here. You know when Johnny Sexton made that break against Scotland? Yeah. I think I saw Malcolm O'Kelly in the stadium tut-tutting. Just shaking his head. That's poor, I mean, poor stuff. He should be kicking for touch there. Yeah. Let the big second rows have a go at it. <laughs> Dev Toner in here. Yeah, I mean, he should have ran... To within, you know, whatever it was, 10 yards of the line, and then just, just, just nudge it into touch. Simon, you've been at the media conferences since the games. Uh, what's, been, what's been going on there? Any themes? Yeah, a couple of themes coming out of it. I suppose the obvious one is Joe Schmidt trying to dampen expectations. And I think he's trying to do it from a player point of view. He's very conscious that there is now that break. And the England game is always, what's well, nearly always the biggest one anyway, but with a triple crown and, and with a potential Grand Slam on the line, it becomes bigger again. And I think he's going to actively try and manage that. I don't know how he's going to go about that, but he's going to try and do it. Mm. The other thing was, um, Peter Manley mentioned it, uh, Paul O'Connell, Schmidt himself, uh, that this thing is player-led partially. Maybe when Schmidt first took over, he obviously had his plans, but I think more and more he's letting their opinions um, have an influence on the thing. So I think something that used to be seen as a bit of a disadvantage was the provinces having very different philosophies, particularly when it was Leinster and Munster dominating the Irish team, that they'd come in with different philosophies and Kidney particularly struggled to bring those two together for the Irish team. That's now been worked on as a positive that we realise there's brilliant ideas coming from all four coaches and the different players of the four provinces. So there's a bit of the word melting pot was used of ideas coming in and then Joe Schmidt takes the best ones away from that. So he's not coming in with all the ideas. He's getting everybody's ideas and then he's choosing the best ones and they're trying to implement that. All right, you had a word with Rory Best after the game. Yeah, I touched on, on that with him a little bit, but he was asked first about the second half performance. This is something that's gone way back. Ireland have built leads quite regularly yeah, against Wales a few times, against New Zealand, obviously. Um, but in the last couple of games, it's been noticeable how we've really just put teams away, been relentless in the second half and tried to put up a bit of a score. And I just asked him if it was something, the second half performance was something they've specifically worked on. Um, I suppose we, we probably weren't weren't really aware of it. You know, we knew that we were starting well and, and not really finishing the game well. But until it's put down in black and white in front of you, and Joe highlighted it um, during the, the sort of camp week, sort of that we were ahead in games or close at half time, and we ended up losing games. And you know, I, I think when you're a professional player and it's highlighted. You know, it hurts a wee bit, especially when within our provinces, you know, we all pride ourselves in the way we finish games, the way we keep at it and the way we back our fitness. You know, we didn't see it as any difference in the international, but when you saw the stats go up, it showed that, that we weren't really finishing it. So to have it highlighted is one thing, but to do something about it is another. And I think it, it's been a big focus for us. And so far, so good in that regard. We have to make sure that, you know, it, it's not just two games. You know, this is a, a five-game championship. We're two games down. We have three massive ones to come, and probably no bigger than two weeks' time. But it's been a big focus, and so far, I've been very happy with the way we've played in the second half. Sorry, Rory. The it seemed as if the well, Peter Manley and Joe Schmidt both suggested that it's player-led. A lot of the improvements in recent weeks. How exactly does that work? And would you agree it's player-led? Um, I think it's. It has to be a bit of both, definitely. You know, I think all successful teams has a 
have strong characters in their leadership and, and characters that not only want to win but are prepared to stand up and make sure we win and you know we have got that in abundance and um, I think it's it's vital you have that um, I think definitely Joe definitely puts a lot of stuff in place but he puts he also puts pressure on us as players to step up to the mark and to do our homework and to make sure we know what, what's going on and, and whenever you get that balance right you produce performances like, like tonight Um and we need to make sure that we don't get too carried away with ourselves. You know, it was a great performance, it was a great result, but you know, ultimately this team and this player group wants more than just two wins in a championship. Over the last three games, it seems as if the game plan's been quite radically different. I know the weather forecast was really bad today, and Joe said you kicked a lot of ball because of that partially, and the mall came as a result of that. But I almost feel against England it could change radically again. You guys are quite comfortable changing game plan depending on the opposition. Yeah, I think... With the work through the autumn and the work, the Christmas work and, and the, the, the camp week, you know, we put in a lot of plays depending on what we need. You know, we, we feel we're adaptable. Um, when, I suppose when you have halfbacks like Connor and Johnny um, in there and Polly driving things in the in the forwards, you know, you, you can be adaptable. But like that, again, it comes back to the pressure Joe's put on us. You know, he throws things at us that maybe we hadn't talked about in the team meeting. He throws different plays at us out there. He challenges us to be mentally tuned in and to be to be adaptable so that when you come to these games, depending on what you, you see or perceive the team's strengths and weaknesses, you can go out and exploit that. And I think it's not a bad it's not a bad trait to have. Um, as long as you can remain accurate, you, you want to make sure that you don't have too many plays if you can't do any of them well. You know, we need to be able to do every play that we pull out of the bag really, really well. Rory Best there speaking after the game on Saturday. Just to go back, Simon, on the and you talked to him about it there, the idea of the player-led versus... Co- it's it's almost as though by the coaches allowing the players to lead or at least feel like they're leading... To think they're leading, <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, you guys are doing all the work here. That's probably the best sign of a great coach. Yeah, exactly. And I, I, they're small things and the players have mentioned, but you know this feeling, say, when Peter Manny gets a turnover and they're all jumping in. Teams sometimes put on a, put that on a little bit, but it seems really genuine this time. And there's little things like Gordon Darcy running into the last mall... The enthusiasm levels, it it partially comes from victories, but it partially comes from a team feeling like we're going in the right direction after feeling for the last couple of years like they're definitely going in no direction, not necessarily the wrong direction, but aimless, just no feel for where they're going. Whereas you know they're all feeling like this is working, but what the coach are telling us is working, what we're putting in is working, and that creates enthusiasm. Second captain's football is out later today. That's... Yeah. (laughs) They have asked for that, really. Yeah, you can laugh. I'm the World Cup. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. You don't know what you're talking about. What yeah. did you know? I managed to stay alive for six oh, days. I'd, 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 I'd say it to you, face, not say it to you now. I want down to Anfield and we'll see them, won't we? What you doing down here, you surely, man? <laughs> no shortage of talking points, Ken, from the weekend? No, uh, it was a really good weekend, actually, football wise. Except, obviously, if you're <laughs> Manchester United supporter or an Arsenal fan. Or an Arsenal fan. Um, yeah, but they've got it. They've got that. I suppose they've got the game on uh, Wednesday. It's going to be really interesting, and both sides have a lot to prove. I think in that game, uh, Arsenal and Manchester United. But yeah, um, we we've got obviously the Blue Arsenal game. The I thought Rene Malenstein. I think we're going to be talking a bit about him, Owen, because I mean he's a, the man's a genius. As he as he explained afterwards at great length, uh, it was easy to do what Fulham did there. Uh, wasn't wasn't very difficult for him at all as a manager to repel ninety minutes of 
ceaseless Manchester United attacking. He was the only attacking. manager. There was another manager earlier in the season who made Sherwood. a similar enough comment. Tim Sherwood, yeah. Oh, we, we, we should have. We really didn't play very well here today, despite smashing Manchester United. Yeah, look, you know, I, I was a bit surprised by Rennie Manasa. I, I would have thought in that situation, he should have been on his knees thanking the Lord for sending him such lions of men instead of essentially downplaying what his players had just done by saying how easy it was. Oh, it was easy. Oh, we didn't get to play the kind of football we wanted to play, you know? But it was, it was easy in the end. And you're thinking, what are you talking about? Your players, have you not seen them on the final whistle? The players are like, my God, this is one of the greatest achievements. We will remember this moment for the rest of our lives. You know, holding off Manchester United, repelling the side, actually going down a goal late on and coming back and getting a point. And then the coach is standing there talking about how easy it was. I thought, Reddy Mountain has, has not really read the mood here very well. You know, I don't know if he's necessarily cut out to be a manager on the basis of these comments, but, you know, we'll talk a bit more about him later on. We'll have that out for you this afternoon. We're joined in studio now by a two-time outdoor world champion hurdler holder of the world record for 13 years. Colin Jackson, thanks very much for popping into us. It's a real pleasure. You've timed this trip well to Dublin after the rugby at the weekend. Um, what rugby? Was there any rugby competition? <laughs> I, I, I don't remember at all. But God, what a performance. Yeah. The Ireland did very well on home turf. Um, even as Welsh, we weren't expecting uh, that type of score. But hey, we've got to move on. Did you ever play yourself? Yes, yeah, I was a fly half, so um, I wasn't quick enough actually to to be on the wings, so I had to play the fly half and oh, yeah? use my legs as a kicker instead. I'm sure you were quick enough even <laughs> even back then. Yeah. So was it something because you would have grown up in the 70s when Welsh rugby was really oh, yeah. at a height? Were there people yeah. pulling in different directions as a talented sportsman at that age? Well, I was doing lots of different sports from athletics to basketball to football to to rugby itself, and I enjoyed rugby more than anything else because of uh, the fact that my mates were doing rugby. So you know when you're certain age, whatever your, your friends and your peers are doing, you tend to gravitate towards. But um, I soon fell out of love with rugby when it started to get very cold and wet. <laughs> and there was a sport called athletics, which was done in the sunshine or indoors. And that was a marvellous feeling for You me. must have had a certain mindset then, though, because... Like you're saying, most people at that age are happy to play with their mates and just mm. do whatever's enjoyable, whereas you obviously felt you had a talent and athletics was the place to, to put it. Well, I enjoyed athletics uh, as well. I enjoyed the running and the jumping element. Too. I was a good long jumper, I was a good high jumper, picking up the javelin and throwing. I was a bit of a multi-venter, really. Um, but I just enjoyed the whole process of playing. You can, as a sport, athletics has so many variations to it. Uh, and I could really participate in all of them. Um, and I wasn't getting hurt. You know, in rugby, I was getting crushed. I broke a collarbone, etc., etc. So, in athletics, it seemed so much easier. So, yeah, it, it kind of steered me towards that. You could have been the next Daley Thompson at one point, then, could you? I would have been better than really? Daley yeah, Thompson. Yeah, 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 yeah. I always tell Daley that. You know, if I'd have really stuck to it, uh, you know, your records would have been obliterated. <laughs> then tell us, Colin, I want to talk about the Olympic Games. The mm. Winter Olympics are on at the moment. Obviously, they don't make maybe as much of an impact, in certainly in Ireland, than uh, the Summer Games do. But... The same concept is there. That there's all this pressure on people to perform uh, a job once every four years. And it's almost as though everything else is forgotten about. You know, there's probably better than most. Because I have seen you uh, referred to many times as the greatest athlete never to win an Olympic gold medal. <laughs> yeah. does, that, um, does that bother you? Um, it doesn't really bother me. Uh, certainly now as a retired athlete, I wouldn't, it wouldn't bother me. You know, when you're, you're competing itself, the Olympic Games is very important. You say it's something that's once every four years. And it's something you dream of as a young person because your very first most probably when your very first sporting memories 
it's the whole affair of the Olympic Games. And then when you're actually there and you have the opportunity of, of winning a medal or winning the title itself, then it, it is a really dream that you focus on. And you realise that sport itself is what you want to do and you want to achieve the best you can possibly achieve. So you always hope during the, the Olympic cycle that uh, you hit it spot on where you're at your best at that particular moment. It can be difficult. And you were in, in 1988, which you mentioned that first of all, you won a silver medal at 21 yeah. years of age. Is it true that you, before the final, you went around the dressing room or the, the uh, holding area eyeballing all your opponents? Yeah, absolutely. Because at 21, I was still very playful and uh, it was something I didn't think I was going to be really good at or it was going to become a, a career you know as career in athletics in, in those days was something that you, you never even thought about so I was a 21 year old I was very playful and I was looking around the dressing room thinking these guys look really serious it's like come on guys just lighten up a little bit so I was kind of thinking let me psych some people up. Let's, let's, let's play with them a little bit mm. and yeah I was staring at people directly in their eyes and I was realising they were putting their heads down every time I was looking at them they were tucking their head down I was thinking hey there's so nervous. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I was enjoying that aspect of it yeah. until obviously I get a little bit older and it becomes more serious for me too and then uh, I wouldn't have found somebody trying to eyeball me uh, very pleasant. Well, I assume Roger Kingdom who won gold in 88, he, was he the one man not to look away? No, he didn't whatsoever. I did play all the way through and I eventually got to Roger and I stared at Roger directly in his eyes and he gave me one of those steely stares back and then it was me who put my head down. So it, uh, I, I kind of paid the penalty for it. It's funny because we associate the 100 metres um, uh, sprint with th- that kind of stuff. You always hear of the top sprinters doing that. It's something I haven't associated as much with hurdles, but I presume it's the exact same. The same sort of psyching out process goes on. Yeah, you yeah. want to win exactly the same gold medal. So um, you do do a lot of psyching out. There's a lot of people who spend a lot... I'll say we spend a lot of time on it, uh, you know, trying to upset you by moving your hurdles around, perhaps moving your starting blocks, you know, just making it uncomfortable for you to settle. But uh, everybody thinks sledging only takes place in cricket. Nope, in the <laughs> athletics turf too. <laughs> in 92, you went in as world number one at the time. Yeah. Mm. You'd beaten everybody. You were favoured to win, oh, I yeah, think. And mm. uh, in your own mind, were you favoured to win? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, for me, I had the fastest time in the world. I'd beaten everybody consistently. Um, for me, it was going to be about how fast I could actually run at the Olympic Games, not whether I was going to win the title. So it wasn't even in my mind that I possibly could lose it. Yeah. Uh, what happened then? <laughs> I ran very quickly in the first round um, without really any preparation. And uh, I was very confident that things were going to go well and I was already thinking to myself right I'm going to win this Olympic title and I'm going to break the world record in the process and if I do that I can really mark myself in athletics in the world of athletics because it's very rare you break a world record and win an Olympic title at the same time uh, and then during the second round, um, I literally didn't do any warming up whatsoever. And I clipped one of the barriers. Well, I more than clipped it. I actually wellied it, we say in Wales. Uh, and it caused me to injure my left oblique muscle. So I ripped my uh, left oblique, which is right, really, I kind of describe it to people. It's where your love handles would be, okay? Right, That's where okay. it is. And it's kind of important for us as hurdlers because it helps us elevate our leg and also to swing our leg over the barrier. And I, I tore that uh, in the second round and literally that was the end of my Olympic Games because from there on in I couldn't move as fluently or swiftly as I could. And that was it. End so, of story. That was, so that was just 
really a lack of focus? You took your eye off the ball after going fast in the yeah, first Yeah, I was already in the final, uh, you know, in my mind, and I was already prepared to run very quickly in the final. So the races in between, which was the second round of the semi-final, um, I completely forgot about. Uh, and I really didn't focus on them at all. I learnt my lesson. I remember looking at you at the start, and there was a false start in that final, mm. and you still looked very much like a man who thought he was going to win, but that was bravado, was it, in your mind? You, the injury was going to prevent it? Oh, I always tell people the look on my face as I went down the second time was more um, fear. Really? <laughs> because I knew I couldn't produce what I wanted to produce. And already in my heart, I was letting people down. So be- even before the race had started, I'd already failed. So as I was going into the blocks, I, I didn't go into the blocks the same way I normally go into blocks because my injury was holding me back. So even from the onset of the preparation for the race, uh, I wasn't ready. So um, the race was really not going not gonna to be won in, in any way. And I couldn't turn my mindset around. I was so disappointed in myself yeah. um, that I couldn't turn my mindset around, which for me is when I look back and reflect on it, it's, it's pretty disappointing that I couldn't manage to do that. What effect did it have on you at the time? Because as you say, now you're retired, you've had so many great experiences. You went on to break the world record yeah. the following yeah. year, win a yeah. world title. So <laughs> the career went very well. But at that moment in 92, after the final, how are you feeling? Can you remember? Yeah, I was devastated. Um, shattered. I mean, my whole world really had fallen apart because I'd set my heart on becoming the Olympic champion. I'd set my heart on on breaking a world record. Um, and I knew I could achieve that. So, you know, the, the sense of disappointment and let, really let down that you have, not only for yourself, because there are many other people that were on that journey with myself. So I felt I'd let down a lot of other people, from coaches, from training partners, to friends, to families. Do you families. feel that? I've heard athletes talk about that, that you've let people down. I always think that seems like a really harsh no, way to view no. your own. No, 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 no. Because for you, um, the race is the bit that you only do. You know, that's it. The other pieces, you know, the preparations, somebody who picks you up every day to take you to training sometime, you let them down because they've kind of participated in in your journey uh, some way, somehow. Friends who are there to pick you up when you're tired and you're exhausted, yet they're the ones who are saying to you, oh, well done, get up there, you can do this again. That sense of, of letdown is incredible. And I remember meeting, as I came off the track um, after the final, two of my training partners were, were waiting for me at the other end, uh, of, of by, literally by your, where you pick up your clothes. And uh, she just burst into tears. Right. So when someone just bursts into tears straight away after your event, then of course it has an effect on you. It's a huge amount of pressure to put on yourself. Uh, the whole psychology of it, I'm talking to you now and we see you on TV, on the BBC, and you always come across a very affable, very nice guy. Do you have to just shelve that when you're competing? Are there two Colin Jacksons, the person <laughs> who goes around talking to friends and family and the guy who competed at such a level? Yeah, yeah. You have that real genuine instinct to you where you take no prisoners. So everybody in this competition has worked hard, um, but you want to prove to everybody you are better than them. So it's not a problem for me to go on the line and, and become very steely and serious because it's my job. It's my role. I, I'm a professional. Um, I work hard. I train hard. I commit myself to, to the cause. Um, so I'm not going to let my down, myself down uh, by being quite flippant. You know, I want to go and I want to take this competition. And if you happen to be a training partner and you're in a race with me, you're going down with everybody else. So sorry about that. <laughs> Would you have any advice for current Olympians based on your own experiences for people over in Sochi? Oh, always keep their mind. Keep your mind on what you're trying to do and take it step by step. You know, don't project yourself into a medal position. Don't project yourself into a final as an Olympic champion. Just 
take your time and get through every single process correctly. All right, Colin, you're in Dublin to promote the Wings for Life World Run, which is mm. on in May. You're the international race director yeah. for this run, which is a really interesting concept. Maybe just tell us a bit about the run, first of all. Well, um, some people may not know what Wings for Life is, is all about. Yeah. And what we tend to do, uh, we're a charity base that um, fundraises for spinal cord injuries research because we've seen that there's very little money that's ever gone into spinal cord research. And We've, we've seen that there can be a difference. If the money's put in, they are making inroads into making people be able to walk again who suffer from spinal cord injuries. So for us, this is a, a really important charity for, um, to raise funds for. And then we've created this uh, world run, um, which is interesting. We're in over 30 countries uh, across the globe, six continents that we all cover. And what we're trying to do is give people the opportunity to run for those who can't really. You know, that's our, we want people to think about that, that why you're running, why you're participating. And someone like me, for example, who took running very much for granted, um, you realize instantly when you see people who have suffered car crashes or done some extreme sports and suffered these major injuries that you shouldn't take movement for granted. You know, we should be really, really um, grateful that things have moved well for us. But the road run itself, we're going to try and raise as much awareness and and, and money as, as we can for the, this worthy cause. Now, what is different about this as a mass participation event is A, that it um, starts exactly the same time all over the globe, which is 10 a.m. Um, GMT. So here uh, in Ireland, it will be 11 because yep. it's summertime. Uh, so, and in New York, it will be five hours behind that, etc., etc. So, But every single race will start at the, at the same time. And then, not just that, we then have a chasing car that will follow the runners half an hour after they've set off. So you can imagine, you're kind of the mouse as a runner, and the cat is the car. And there's no finish line. So the point is, you keep there's running no until, that, until that cat catches you. Exactly. Yeah. So we have a start line, but there's no finish. The finish line is dictated by you, how far you can go. So I like the fact that you can sit there and negotiate with yourself and your friends how far you can do, but how, how much distance you're going to gain within that half an hour because the car doesn't start until half an hour after yeah. you set up and it only starts at 15 kilometers an hour and then it will speed up in, in increments as it goes along but how are you going to use those first 30 minutes do you walk for 10 minutes run for 10 minutes walk again and then off you go well, I love the idea of the car chasing you down because nothing motivates people like fear and the fear <laughs> of the car catching up with you and passing I would imagine there might be a lot of slow running but then when you hear the car yeah you can imagine that and for us, what, what is great, we will be able to mark out everybody individually. So we can tell you exactly how far you've gone before the, the car catches you, which, again, is one of these processes that w- will be interesting for people. And because it's a global run itself, you could have friends in, in, in the USA, in Australia, in South Africa, um, and contact them and say, OK, Let's do this race all together and see who goes the furthest. And it is so, for all levels. It is for all okay. levels. You know, many people will be thinking that, you know, like proper fun runs. You know, people are there, you, you set your own goals, your own targets, and you go as far as you could possibly go. Now, we'll have some ultra runners that, that will be involved who can, who can perhaps run 80, 90 kilometers before the car catches them. Well, you know, someone like myself, if I was running, I'd be lucky if I made 12 kilometers before the, the, the car caught me. But it's all about the participation itself. It's about setting your own personal challenges and raising as much money as you possibly can in that sense. Because for us, what is important that people understand that 100% of their entry fee 
goes to research. There's not one piece of it that goes to any administration, etc., etc. 100% goes directly into research. And I think, uh, again, that's one of the new things that we can do. And for those in Ireland, the run starts in Killarney and goes around the ring of Kerry. So that's it right. doesn't get much more picturesque than that. Wingsforlifeworldrun.com is the name of the website. That is the website. You can have a look and find out absolutely everything you need to know there. Colin, great to talk to you. And commiserations once again on the rugby. <laughs> You've glossed over it nicely. Thank you. Hairdryers is a metaphor for the current of hot air generated by a various blasts of temper. The hairdryer with which uh, Alex Ferguson was famously associated, he threw a hairdryer, I think, at David Beckham. I was told that he threw a hairdryer at David Beckham uh, in the. Is that right? No, 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 no. Seems like a very nice guy, Colin Jackson, as we've seen on TV. And as I mentioned to him, there do seem to be. Um, or there does seem to be more than one Colin Jackson. Mm. Uh, Murph, the, I, like, I like the fact that even he's talking in a really bubbly, positive way about how he would grind upon, oh yeah, yeah, no, yeah, I was very nice, yeah, but uh, obviously if you're my training partner and we were up against each other at the Olympic Games, I will crush you. Mm. Uh, but I, then I, I'll chat to you afterwards, no bother. Yeah, I kind of think that maybe it was it was nearly fashionable in this country right around the turn of the millennium, like our most... The, the the biggest stars in our in sport, or some of the biggest stars in sport at least, had like this mad, crazy desire within a sporting context, but also kind of carried that on into actual life. I mean, the reality is sports people have to actually live in real life as well. So they can't go around, you know, staring down the girl at the checkout in the supermarket until she, you know, gives him, you know, three euro off his bill. I mean, the, the fact of the matter is... I'm sure Maurice Green did that. Yeah, well, maybe he did. Maybe Maurice did. Maybe he did kind of disrobe every time he w- entered into a sort of social, uh, uh, a social interaction. But I mean, I think you can, as Colin Jackson showed over the course of his career, you can both be a very nice person and also not be sort of like a crazed lunatic. In in, I mean, like say Roy Keane, Kieran McGinley, these types. You know, we kind of built these people up massively in this country around two thousand and two, two thousand and three, two thousand and four, into like this. If you are a driven sportsman, this is how you have to act in every interview, in every sort, of, in every way that anyone sees. I'm you. sure if Roy Keane or Kieran McGinley were listening, they'd like to consider themselves nice guys. Oh yeah, well, I mean, it's not even that you can be nice or be, you know, not nice. Mm. I mean, that that's not kind of what I'm saying. But I mean, it's more that that attitude you don't have to carry that around with you 24 hours a day. You can actually switch you know, off from time to time. Yeah, smile, smile crack a smile <laughs> from time to time. Ken, we'll hear more from you later on in Second Captain's Football at the Irish Times. Do follow us on Twitter at Second Captain's, Facebook.com forward slash Second Captain's, and you can pop some emails in, particularly if you want to get a P Bezel going at any stage. Yeah, I think we're, we're going to hit up some P Bezels on, uh, ter- on Thursday. Second Captain's wow. on IrishTimes.com. Kieran, thank you. Thank you, Owen. Thank you, Ken. Thanks, Kieran. Thanks, Owen. Thanks for listening. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys.